welcome to the Wine Access Unfiltered Podcast. I am Amanda McCrossin, and I am fresh back to talk to you about one of my new favorite wine regions. This is the fifth largest wine-producing region in the world. It is home to several hundred-point wines. It's the adoptive birthplace of Malbec. It is Mendoza, my friends, and I am joined today by my friend and my colleague and fellow podcaster who also happened to be on the trip with me, Mr. Robert Vernick. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's great. Uh, it's, uh, after having you as my guest a couple times, it's great to <laughs> finally get invited. Finally. I know. it's It's been too long. I have, I have always enjoyed being a guest on X Chateau, which is your podcast and focuses on the business side of wine. It's one of my favorite podcasts to listen to because I think it it really gives us a glimpse into the things that we don't often get to talk about with wine. You and Peter do such a great job of bringing some really interesting people onto your show. And you guys release weekly, is that right? For the most part, weekly. Uh, we do about 50 episodes a year. Uh, we do some re-releases, uh, library releases to keep in the wine theme. And uh, we do some, not seasons, but uh, like blocks of themes that we're kind of covering. So we did a whole big one on sustainability where we had like nine episodes. And so we try to like come up with a theme, a couple of themes a year that we kind of go for multiple weeks and get different parts of the world. So not just all in California. Yeah. I love a good theme. We just did a whole Michelin theme. It was good. It was a good time. And you keep busy doing wine chair war on Instagram too. You do great reviews. If you all want to learn about some seriously cool, expensive, high-end, older bottles of wine, Robert at Wine Terroir on Instagram is the place to be. You opened some cool bottles over there, huh? Yeah. I mean, not as great as some, but uh, you know, I, I definitely like my uh, aged wines and uh, I like to taste a range of things from current releases to, to older wines because I think it helps the context uh, of like what these wines could be. And so be able to open some older things uh, with some bottle age. Like I've, I love early 90s Napa cabs. And yeah, me too. Old Barolo or Baroli, whatever the appropriate term is there. How are you feeling? Are you I'm I'm like, I feel like I'm recovered from Mendoza. You and I were there for about a week together. Uh, are you like sick of Malbec yet? Or are you ready to dive into it again? I haven't been drinking the right Malbecs is my takeaway. Ah, oh, um, me too. Yeah, like I tried so many different things. And uh, and honestly, I was really impressed by the Chardonnays that we had. Yes. I think we saw a number of great producers. It gave us a really diverse look at the region in terms of what they're doing and, and the different styles. And it's not just dark purple, you yeah. know, fruit bombs that are over-oaked. Like that's totally like a preconception that people have about a, what the region maybe was like mm-hmm. 10, 15 years ago. And so uh, I was really happy to see the people who are changing the face of Mendoza and and really dialing into to the terroir and where they're at. And and, and like, I have never been in so many pits of soil. Uh, <laughs> in my- <laughs> Say my shoes are filthy. <laughs> exactly. I was like, I was like, oh, not wearing those shoes into the, into the yeah. pits. Like they're taking it seriously, like right. Everybody that we, yeah. we went, like they're really taking, like they're trying to find, figure out what the real expression is. You know, they don't have the four hundred years of history that a Burgundy has, no. and so, uh, but they're trying to catch up as quick as possible. And I really respect uh, the at least the producers that we visited that what they're doing. And we saw some producers a little bit more natural, some were a little bit more classic, and then the, the range in between that are kind of like doing the different uh, mm-hmm. takes of what their terroir looks like and, and how what it should taste like. Yeah. I mean, they're definitely expediting the process for sure in terms of like getting up to speed with quality and understanding their soil and the landscape and where they should be planting and what, because we didn't just taste Malbec. We tasted a lot of different things, as you said, Chardonnay being one of them. So we have a lot to dive into when it comes to Mendoza. But before we get there, we are going to jump into the news and events portion of the show. 
All right, Robert, I asked you before we went on our Mendoza trip, have you watched the brand new show about wine that Esther Mobley from the San Francisco Chronicle has said is actually pretty good? Have you watched Drops of God yet? I have not since we got oh. came back from the show. It's uh, but I have I have read I have I have read some of the the, the manga uh, books before, and so I'm, I'm quite familiar with Drops of God. But I really want to see it translated. Super happy to see it. it's on Apple because uh, most of their exclusive uh, TV shows are, are really high production value. So it is on my list. Well, it should be on everyone's list because I actually have watched the first two episodes, and I have to say I agree with Esther. Aside from a few, as I told you on the trip. A few little things here and there that were a little like, eh, I don't know about all that. But I will say of the wine shows, of the wine-focused content that is out there, it is definitely one of the best that I've seen so far. For those of you unfamiliar, as Robert said, it's on Apple TV+. Plus. It is an exclusive to them, but it is based on this Japanese manga. It centers around an inheritance from the world's largest private collector of wine, and the two potential inheritors of said collection are... One, his daughter, Camille, and the other, his adoptive or spiritual son, I should say, who has really been his his legacy. He, you know, this, this guy mentored this young man, and now he's in the wine industry, and he's allegedly one of the best blind tasters on the planet. And so the story goes, the two basically have to compete via a blind tasting to see who gets this crazy inheritance of wine, along with a couple houses, I think. And it's pretty fun to watch because... You get to see blind tasting in action. And I have to say, like, they do a great job of highlighting the different specifics of different grapes and terroirs and how that plays into tasting. And and by the way, we actually did a whole episode on how to taste wine. It was me and Vanessa and Sir Lucero. And if you kind of want to, like, bookend your Drops of God experience with that episode to kind of get a sense of what they're talking about – I highly recommend. I like that there's a companion episode of, of Wine Access yeah. and Filter to like go with <laughs> it. That's awesome. I want to check that out. A lot of people get it wrong. When it comes to like wine-focused yeah. content, movies, TV shows, like a lot of stuff is wrong. Are you irritated about that? Because I kind of get a little frustrated. Yeah, it, it annoys me for sure. But it's hard because this isn't like wine adjacent. is isn't like a story being told in wine country. It is you kind of have to be a little bit more dialed in with this given the, the nature of the of the narrative that they're trying to tell here. So I, I'm hoping they they will get it right. And again, I think that the all these streaming services, their production values are so high that having a wine expert <laughs> that really consult and make this true, I'm sure they're, they've, they've invested heavily in that regard. They have invested heavily, although there was one particular scene in the very beginning where the guy like picks up the glass and he's literally like like a full foot away from it. And I'm like, nobody smells like that. No wine professional smells like that. You get your nose in the glass, you smell the glass. And what's crazy is he like blinds it just basically off the nose alone. And he's like, this is a blah, blah, blah. Like he goes for the whole producing the vintage and you're like, well, it's a little yeah. looks great, but like, it's pretty you know, hard. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty hard to do. It's not, I wouldn't say it's impossible, but maybe some person's done it, but you should watch it. It's good. We'll do. I'm excited to see what happens over the course of a season. Speaking of excited to see what happens, I'm excited to see what happens with the world of natural wine. I don't know if we're in like the third wave of coffee equivalent of natural wine right now, but Treasury Wine Estates, most famous for wines like 19 Crimes, they own Behringer and BV and Napa, but they're Australia-based for the most part uh, because they own Penfolds. They just released a sort of natural wine called Second Glance. They're releasing an amber wine, a chillable Grenache, and a pet nat described as picked early and naturally fermented for extra freshness and swagger. Gotta have that swagger in the bottle. So you know it's good. Yeah. 
It's like this wine contains sulfites and and extra swagger. (laughs) And swagger. I like natural wine. I think natural wine is a category that, of course, is undefined, right? It's or officially undefined. You know, we all sort of know it to be minimally invasive in terms of like, you know, what we're intervening with. So no sulfur, organic farming, you know, no oak usually. And I will say Australia has done a pretty good job of like making these what they call smashable reds in the past. So I think if anyone's going to do it first at this scale, it maybe should be Australia. But I'm curious, like, what is the signal for you? I actually think as a pet nat format, I'm more okay with natural wine than others because it it truly is a a natural format, right? In Mm -hmm. terms of you're stopping the grapes throughout the process and you're letting the secondary fermentation happen. There's no secondary fermentation. It's just the primary fermentation continuing on and, and getting a slightly right. carbonation. My, my issue with pet nats are really about how stable are they. Now, you can't be treasury and not make them stable, right? You just make it at such a volume. I would assume, right? So I, I actually think it's a good thing in terms of that because so many pet nats I get annoyed by going to like wine bars in San Francisco and you open this bottle and like half the bottle could flow out of it like a <laughs> volcano and you're just like, what am I going to do about it? When things like natural wine, which have sort of been on the fringe for you know the better part of 10, 15 years, at least as it relates to this era, right? I think any time that we've got money invested into it, it could be a good thing. Like I think it puts other things on the world stage in the same way that third wave coffee did, right? It upped the production quality. It moves the needle for a lot of things. It gets people excited about a category that they maybe weren't excited about before. So I'm excited to see what Treasury does. I will say it looks like it's only available in Australia for the moment, which maybe signals to me that they're like, they're not quite ready for the export market because it is, you know, a unstable products to some degree, right? So you're going to make it in Australia, you're going to sell it in Australia, but who knows, maybe they'll start making something here in the States because they they certainly have enough production facilities in in California to make that happen. To have a higher acid, lower alcohol, slightly sparkling, maybe slightly some residual sugar wine, like it has a lot of factors. Maybe it's cloudy, like having that being a common wine that's actually readily available, that will change a lot of perceptions as well. And in the day, if it's, as long as it's good and enjoyable, and fairly priced, I think that it's good for the market to add uh, something. And again, looking at uh, big champagne houses like Moet, who's making, you know, who knows how many millions of bottles of Dom Perignon yeah. every year or every vintage that they declare. Like right. if they can do that, I'm sure uh, Treasury Wine can figure out how to make a, a stable, more natural uh, pet nat. So, uh, you know, I look forward to that. Hopefully it, it forces other people that are actually in the more in the natural space to kind of make sure that they get their products to market in a more stable fashion. If you are not into pet natting, you're ready to drink a cocktail, there's great news for you because our friend Emma Watson, i.e. Hermione Granger, who weren't we talking about Hermione Granger on this trip? Didn't we talk about At some point, yeah. <laughs> anyway, Hermione Granger from Harry Potter, or if you're a fan of Beauty and the Beast, she was the live action belle in Beauty and the Beast. She and her brother, Alex, have launched a gin that is not only inspired by the vineyards of Chablis, but it's actually made using the remnants of the vineyards of Chablis. And it's, it's in fact, Grand Cru Chablis. So she and her brother launched, launched a gin called Rene, which means rebirth. And this is upcycled French pressed wine grape skins and leaves that they're distilling and turning into gin. And then they're infusing with something called Kimmeridgian stone distillate. Okay, getting that minerality okay. in the glass. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> and then, of course, they've got their botanicals. They've got their linden flowers, berries, acacia honey, and juniper, of course, gin. I've never been more curious about a gin in my entire life. A Grand Cru Chablis gin. 
I'm ready to try it. I just I want the accompanying vermouth as well, though. I don't mean to be, you know, too greedy, but I want it all. I am curious what Kimmerjian stone distillate means. Sure. You could use potatoes and you wouldn't know. Like, it's really hard to translate what that base product is when you're going to such a high proof. Right. To really, like, translate and using Grand Cru Chablis, like, I, the word upcycling of Grand Cru Chablis. Right. <laughs> Maybe slightly issues with, but. We're making it out of our trash. Yeah. This would have normally gone to compost, but instead we're making gin out of it. Yeah, that is not, that is not trash. <laughs> it's like, it's a, <laughs> I'm curious to try it. I feel like if anyone should try it, it's Dan Petrosky, right? That guy lives dim more than oh, yeah. more than anyone else I know. So if the people from Renee are listening, get that band a bottle of this gin. He'll invite Robert and I over. We'll report back and let you know how it is. Well, there was that guy in California who was it uh, who basically made wines and put like s- stones in them, different types of stones. What? Yeah, and and like ma- and he wasn't allowed to like re- sell them basically, but he he put different. Yeah, because he. Yeah, he put stones in them to see if that would actually transfer any of the flavor into the wines. Survey says. Yeah, uh, well, and I'm sure it adds something, but how much of that is actually what you want to be drinking? <laughs> so interesting stuff all around. And uh, by the way, if that is your favorite part of this podcast, that's a great reason to go and check out X Chateau because this is like basically all you guys do, right? You talk about like what's going on in the world, different news, different events. And if you like this podcast, this is your cue to like, subscribe, and review it. If you're watching on YouTube, hit the thumbs up button. If you love this show, it really helps us. You know, it helps other people find the show. We are very appreciative when that happens and so appreciative, in fact, that if you leave us a review, we will read it on the show. So today's review of the week comes from John K8777, who says, I live in Napa Valley and have worked in the industry for six months, and I listen almost every day on my way to work. I love that. Your podcast is extremely helpful and informative. Fried chicken and champagne was an absolute game changer. Sure is. And I've shared that pairing with all of my guests and they were absolutely blown away. That is such a good hack in life. If you don't know the fried chicken and champagne hack, it's a good one. Keep up the great work and amazing content. You and Vanessa are absolutely amazing. John, I can't thank you enough. Keep eating all the fried chicken and champagne. It's delicious. I couldn't agree more. It's one of my favorite things to tell people who are like just getting into wine. They're like, I don't know if I like champagne. I'm like, just try it with fried chicken or a bag of potato chips. You'll be fine, right? French fries. Uh, I, French I, fries. French fries and yeah. champagne. Yeah, basically anything fried, right? S- salty. Yeah. Grab yourself a snack, speaking of which, and if you are part of the Wine Access Unfiltered Podcast Wine Club, this is your cue to go get yourself a snack and your bottle of wine. Today, we're drinking some Malbec from Zuccardi. If you're not a member of the Wine Access Unfiltered Podcast, what the heck are you waiting for? The link to sign up is in the description below. Get yourself in the club. Drink with us on the show. It's a party and a good time, and I select the wines myself. So there you go. All right. We'll be right back talking about Mendoza. All right, you guys, hopefully you have some wine in your glass because I certainly do, as does Robert. Today, we've got the 2020 Zuccardi Polygonos Malbec from Guatagerie Mendoza. Before I even went to Zuccardi, we picked this wine out because I I wanted to have some in the wine club that I knew I was going to be able to visit when I went to Mendoza. So we we pre-selected this ahead of time. But I think it was serendipitous because, Robert, I don't know about you, and I I hate to, like, play favorites, but was Zuccardi kind of your favorite? Oh, hands down. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, because Sebastian yeah. uh, Zuccardi, who was, who was hosting us, 
man, that guy is infectious with his right? like passion for dirt. Like yes. we had to like, we had to like drag him out of the pits. He's like, but no, I can show you that, that, that pit over there. There's Look at those rock. soils. He's like, wait, wait, I'm still digging for rocks. Don't leave. Like, <laughs> <laughs> he just had like a random pickaxe in his, yeah. in his back pocket. Yeah. It was so serendipitous that this was the wine that ended up in the wine club. And I've always been a fan of Zuccardi, although I will say I had actually never had any of their higher end things. So. I was really only familiar with the like 15 to $20 range, especially the Trantes. And we'll get into this in a second. I think we were all just absolutely blown away by what they are doing in the Uco Valley. And that is where this wine is from. So this is coming from a specific region in the Uco Valley called Guatajari. It looks like Guatalari. Um, and I've heard a few different pronunciations of it. Some sound like Guantajari. And anyway, this is one of the, the regions in the Uco Valley that is known for producing very high-end wines. And this is the polygonos, which means polygon, right? So you're showing all different sides of the area vis-a-vis different vineyards. The other really interesting thing about this wine and, and specifically about Zuccardi is that, as Robert alluded to earlier, It really feels like the region is moving away from lots of new French oak and definitely in the direction of more concrete. And there's maybe no better example of a producer doing that like on the opposite end of the pendulum than Zuccardi. And so this wine was actually done entirely in concrete. It is 100% Malbec from the single region of Guatajari. And I couldn't be more excited about it because I think this is a great representation of wines that are coming out of Mendoza that we're not paying attention to that we absolutely should be. It's juicy, it's bright, it's minerally, but there's a seriousness to this wine that I think really speaks to the place. I think, you know, if you smell it, not to get like too weird about it, but like it does kind of smell like these like calcium carbonate soils, right? Like it's it's a little limestoney and salty and herbal. Herbal, right? Oh my gosh. Remember all the herbs that he like kept pulling off? It was like, here's local yeah. floor and fauna, like or <laughs> exactly. you know, like smell this, taste this, eat that. Like exactly, exactly. So, you know, I think this wine is a wine that you can definitely get lost in. And I think over the course of the next, you know, 30 minutes or so, this is gonna open up even more. But what was your perception of Malbec going into Mendoza? I mean, I know you're a student of wine, so you have a, a more objective take on this, but like a, as a subjective take, like as a person, right, as a, as a wine drinker, what was your take on Malbec going into this? And what was your take on Malbec coming out of this? Because I have two different ones. I mean, at the high level, it's like a failed grape of France in France. And so right. the adopted home being now Argentina, I think that's Mendoza being obviously like where 80% of the wine from Argentina comes from being a higher altitude and and in different soils allow it to kind of show its, its true potential, you know, getting the right amount of ripeness that it needs without, you know, kind of going over the top. And then it's really just how you treat it. Right. And like, so I've had Malbecs from all over Argentina prior to this trip, but then going to on the trip, I was starting to see how people are really starting to dial it in. So like, you know, there's, there's the Mendoza region at large, and then this is Uco Valley. And then this is even inside of that Guadalajara, which is a, a geographic in, indication inside of that one of uh, several sub-regions of Uco Valley. And so it, it's quite interesting. And then then you get the individual vineyards that are having different soil types. And, it, it, and, and just they're starting to dial it in very quickly. My takeaway is that there's so much going on in that and the old adages of how high up you are isn't the only razor mm. and there's a lot of other factors that are going into these wines and not just the soil type there's just it's it's so multifaceted in terms of understanding what are the other influences are on 
where this wine is actually grown that sometimes makes great wine and sometimes makes a good component that should be blended with other things. And, yeah. and being honest with that is is really important. True, true. And I mean, I think with that being said, uh, you mentioned that Argentina is not the home, it's the adoptive birthplace of Malbec, though I think we've all come to associate the two together. You know, the home is really in Franz Coeur being, you know, a great birthplace of it. You can also find it in the Loire Valley. But as you said, blended often when it's not as great, which often is the case in Bordeaux, right? You see it blended into your Bordeaux blends, which is really kind of how it came to be in Argentina in the first place, right? They, Argentina was looking for a grape that could produce a higher quality wine. And so you had the French agronomist, Michel Puget, who brought over several vines from France and Malbec stuck. It just, you know, became the grape that really worked in this region, which, you know, I will say we were there, you know, we're, we're recording this May 3rd. We were there basically the very last week of April, which is, you know, as you will recall, Argentina's in the Southern Hemisphere. Therefore, it was fall, right? So we're coming right out of harvest. But the weather was beautiful, right? We're dealing with a continental climate, a region that is completely bordered by the Andes on the Western side, a region that doesn't get a ton of rain, which means they have to irrigate, but it does get a ton of sunshine. So, you know, in many ways, sort of the opposite of Bordeaux, right? Which, you know, does get sunshine, but not a, you know, they get a lot more rain. And so you- it's a maritime. Yeah. Right, maritime, right. So you're able to get really great ripeness in Malbec in the entire Mendoza region. And so you can get a much higher quality expression of the grape. I think, you know, if we're talking about blind tasting, I, I want to read from Guildsam, which is a great, you know, if you want to super geek out about different grapes in different regions, this is a resource that I use a lot. In Guildsam, the textbook definition, so to speak, of Malbec is it offers brambly black and red mountain fruit tones, rich and robust texture, and sweet floral tones. So those are the things you can kind of expect from Malbec on any given day. But to your point earlier, depending on where you plant it, not just elevation-wise, it can have all of these different expressions that really range from super minerally and expressive with herbal tones, you know, really reaching into those like more like limestone, rocky sort of flavors. And then, you know, it can be super plushy. Like I think there was one that I tasted that I was like, this reminds me of Pomerol. So it's a really interesting grape. And, and as we said, you know, Sebastian Zaccardi is an example of a producer that's pushing into finding ways to find more quality, as well as, you know, you cannot ignore Katinga Zapata, right? Nicholas Katinga Zapata was one of those producers who reached into the experimental side of the vineyards long before anyone else's. And, and we even toured the experimental facility, winemaking facilities that they have to see, you know, what they're doing to improve not only viticulture for Malbec, but for lots of different grapes. As we talk about Malbec, one thing I definitely want people to have in the back of their minds, if it's not in the forefront already as you're sipping it, is what you eat with Malbec. Robert, what do you eat with Malbec? <laughs> Beef. <laughs> a, I, I'm, I'm happy to report that I think, at least for me personally, I, I Argentina has one, maybe two less cows due to my visit. Uh, I'm not sure about, uh, about what your contribution is into the, into the <laughs> reducing. I feel the like I cows. contributed heavily between the empanadas and like the steaks for like, uh, I was trying to recount someone was like, what did you eat in Argentina? And I was like, beef, like all the beef, like every meal there was beef, like, beef and carbs. <laughs> I can't, right. I can't remember a single meal when we like, we didn't have some version of beef, whether that was like an entire steak or whether it was like in an empanada or like just as like a little like tapas style snack, like beef was everywhere. And it's so good and it works so, so well 
with Malbec, especially when we're talking about like these more clean, pure expressions of, of Malbec, especially like the polygonos here, because I think, you know, Malbec isn't a grape that has, I think, you know, a ton of natural acidity, but when you make them in this way, when you hide, when you don't mask it with tons of rich oak and you don't over extract it and you don't pick it so that's super, super late. It actually has a really nice like minerality and acidity structure. Texture, yeah. Yeah. And I think it works really well with beak. Yeah, I know. I think it, I think it goes well. I think if you're like the acid is the prominent, there are acidifications that happen mm-hmm. with some of the producers we talked to, but not the highest end, right? Like this highest end are just farming their grapes properly. So they're getting, you know, the, this moderate level of acidity, uh, but they're getting a lot of texture. And I think that's the, that, that, that mineral note. I, I guess my big takeaway is that I think Malbec is one of the grapes that can reflect its site fairly well. Yes. And as tasting through lineups of like, here's three different vineyards. And it's like the, it, it's demonstrable what the difference is by these, these soil types in, in a lot, in most cases, all their vinification was the same. And it's just mm-hmm. like, wow, you can really see the difference and it's not just different winemaking. And so I, I, th- I think it is in that Pinot Noir Riesling Chardonnay camp of grapes mm. where I don't think Cabernet Sauvignon, like, like I didn't actually taste that much Cabernet Sauvignon when I was there. And I kind of, I was okay with it because everybody, everybody grows Cabernet Sauvignon and it's like, and it, I don't think it's as much of a terroir grape. Don't get mad at me, Napa. Yeah. It's like as, as maybe, as maybe some of those other grapes I mentioned. And, and I'm going to, I want to add ball back into that mix. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a really solid takeaway. And I'm, I don't know that I was with you until this moment. And as you were talking about, I was like, you know what? As I think about it, and if we think about, you know, the Rieslings, the Pinots, you know, even the Italian varieties, right? Sangiovese, Nebbiolo, grapes that grow really well in very specific places. I think Malbec could be lumped into that camp because how many great expressions of Malbec do we see outside of Mendoza? Like not that many. Not as a pure varietal. Right. Not as, right. Blended in short. And there's a, you know, there's a handful of in Napa that like do well. And maybe it's just a function of like, nobody is really taking it as seriously as they're taking other varieties. But to your point, you know, I think Cabernet Sauvignon does really well in Napa. It does really well in Mendoza. But to your point, I think, you know, this expression of terroir, maybe not as much as of something like Malbec. It's a good point And one that I think lends itself to the fact that you have to go to Mendoza to experience what we're talking about because unfortunately there is not a lot being exported out uh, of this quality that we're talking about. And you know it is being exported. We're getting we're getting it in different places, but you're not getting it as widely. Are you seeing it? I mean, I, that was actually one of my questions for you. I know you eat out a lot of restaurants, you do a lot of wine buying. Are you seeing Malbec out there of this quality? Are you buying it when you do see it? I think you see it at some of the steakhouses, mm-hmm. but I also think the top end stuff that we tasted, our three tier system is not helping us. And it, and it's kind yeah. of putting it in a slightly more at- atmospheric price point than I think we would really like it to be in terms of what other, maybe other countries like the UK are getting. And so when I was hearing right. about the export pricing and then like, well, what's the retail in the UK versus the US? Right. I was like, oh Ooh. man, we're getting the shaft here because- <laughs> it was like a $50 differential in some of these wines. It's like, oh, at that price point, like this is a, this has a very different market positioning than when it becomes these higher prices. Because once it gets to the United States, then it's competing with Napa cap prices, you know, at steakhouses. Here's the thing, like when you get into the high-end territory of Malbec, which I think is a great place to be, it does compete price-wise with what's going on in Napa. 
But even at an entry level, like there's still some really good stuff coming out of there. And you can't say that about a lot of other regions. So I think the there concreto, is like- the, yes. the, It was like $40 retail, 20, like 25 to $40, I think. And this Polygonos is in the same same bracket, 30 to 40 bucks. And you're getting like a, you know, a single region expression of incredibly farm vineyards um, from this super special place. So yeah, it's interesting. And I think like, I think for people that maybe want to branch out outside of Cabernet, you know, have a little bit more fun. I think Malbec's really interesting and I think also really ageable. I mean, we had some really great wines with age, right? That, you know, from the early 2000s that, you know, to me, sort of like aged like Napa Valley wines, like the, you know, the well-made ones. Um, And I was not mad at those. We've talked a lot about Malbec, rightfully so, but those were not the only wines that we tried, right? We tried lots of different grapes. Yeah. I mean, I was really impressed by a lot of the Chardonnays. They reminded me, you know, a lot of times like kind of like ripe, but like blocked on oaked mm-hmm. or minimal oak. And so I really liked what was happening there. Uh, also, again, I think that because they, they're studying their soils so much, figuring out where to place Chardonnay has become a lot better. And, and honestly tasted some great Cabernet Francs, which um, we're yes. not seeing those here at all, which is yeah, crazy. Yeah, big surprise. Yeah. Cabernet Franc was probably the biggest surprise for me. And you know, not even just, t- we tried the, what, the Grand El, El I can't say, El, 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 El Enemigo. And someday I'll get it. It's the one made by Alejandro Vigil from Katinga Zapata. And, and it was wonderful and lovely, but we tasted a, a lot beyond that. And Cabernet Franc in Mendoza is killer. Yeah. We had some really, really good ones. I think we had one from um, one of my favorite places, which was uh, Finca de Cerro. Yes. Yes. We tasted, and we tasted some age versions of that as well. And yeah. some blends with that. So it was great. Yeah. Yeah. Tarantes, of course, you know, a very big grape in in Mendoza, although not as big as I, not, we didn't taste as many as I thought we were going to taste. We tasted some from Salta and early on in the trip. Mm-hmm. Uh, we tasted one from, uh, from Babao. Uh, which is like the most, one of the most famous producers for it. Yeah. And Bernarda, another grape that I thought we were going to taste tanker loads of that like everyone was kind of like, eh, Bernarda, which is known as Charbono. So if you guys know about Charbono and Napa Valley, which is having like a little mini resurgence, Bernarda traditionally blended with Malbec. We didn't see much of it. Nope. But yeah, I think Cabernet Franc, Cabernet Sauvignon is is interesting, especially when it's blend. Like I love them in a blend. Yes. We tasted some really great examples of that. For those of you who are listening to this podcast and like ready to book a flight, Let's talk about how the heck you get to this place, right? <laughs> it was quite a journey. Yeah, I went San Francisco to Houston, and then it's a night overnight flight down to Buenos Aires, and then stayed a day, and then another two hours flight on a different airport at the domestic mm-hmm. airport up to Mendoza, which, you know, they're a little fast and loose with the times on the domestic airport because <laughs> we ended up sitting there for quite a while. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, so and then, and then you got to get to where Mendoza is a big region, and so you got to get to where your, your hotel's at. It's not an easy place to get to, although I will say the upside of if you're coming from the United States and flying down to South America, number one, you can have like a little summery weather in the cold winter in North America, right? And number two, the time zone. You know, one of the hardest parts for me when I'm flying to other wine regions, which are usually in Europe, is that, you know, anywhere from, what is it, four to six hour time difference. And that can be brutal. And so you're really only dealing with like anywhere from like one to two, one to three. I think you were at three. Four, 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 four. Four. So, you know, because of daylight savings. But if you're coming from the East Coast, like I was at the time, you know, it's a really easy adjustment, which I could not have been more grateful for. But it's a it's a long flight, lots of direct flights going, like uh, like Robert said, into Buenos Aires. And then you're going to take a two-hour flight from a different airport because there's three airports in VA to Mendoza. Interestingly, one of our 
trip baits flew into Santiago, Chile, which is an option. And then you would fly only an hour to Mendoza. So you can always look at those two different places because Santiago is just on the other side of the Andes Mountains, right? And you I mean, you could also do a trip to Chile, although it sounds like Argentina and Chile, you know, they like to stay on opposite sides of the border, right? Not a lot of love for both. They're literally defined by the mountain. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, that is our border. Uh, is yeah. Our I mean, I think there, well, there's rivalry on many levels from wine to uh, football. Once you do get here, we didn't actually stay in the city of Mendoza, which you could definitely do. We actually stayed at this little town of Chakras de Coria. And we stayed at a great little hotel called Finca Aldoguiza, which was lovely and charming. And our rooms were like on the more like rustic side, but they had, which, but like very well appointed with like very white country chic. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Heated floors. Yeah. What was lovely was we, when we arrived, they had these like fresh empanadas, like ready and waiting for us at like, I mean, it was very sweet of them. It was like 9.30 at night because our flight was delayed. And what I loved is they actually do empanada cooking classes. And this is what I love about going to different wine regions. I love these like other experiences that you can have beyond just wine tasting. So that was one of them that I thought was really cool because you can do these empanada cooking classes. And then we headed down to the Yucca Valley and um, we stayed at this lovely little place called La Mirada de las Andes, which was lovely and expanding and has a restaurant and is actually owned by our friend Andres, who was on the trip with us. And that's where we we visited Zucardi, which I have to, you know, we've talked about Zucardi a lot, but like you have, if you're in Mendoza, you have to go to Zucardi. It is a beautiful, beautiful winery. They like built it from the stones from the property. You get to see all the concrete. And then the other thing that I think is really interesting, and I'm sure you found interesting, is like a lot of these places have their own restaurants, right? So like yep. Tinga Zapata had their own restaurant. Zucardi had their own restaurant. I think one of the others we went to as well had their own restaurant. And and even I think there's a producer that like has a hotel there now too. So, I mean, you've been to a lot of wine regions, but I felt like Mendoza was definitely one of the most set up for hospitality for wine tourists that I've ever been to. Definitely. Um, and I, I, I think the amount of restaurants speaks to the connection between the food and the wine. And yeah. I mean, honestly, we didn't have a bad meal the entire trip. No, not one. These aren't like little like canopies that you get with your wine. This is like- right. This isn't a cheese plate. Yeah, this is like a full on meal. And so we don't, you don't yeah. really see that that much uh, in Napa even, which is like the home of like hospitality. Yeah. Now you would get all these crazy experiences in Napa, but like the connection with the food and the wine was re- was really a significant. And, it, and I was I was blown away by the quality of food, whether whether that was an impromptu setup for us, cooking out, a lot of cook, outdoor cooking and mm-hmm. wood fire cooking uh, that was great, uh, and seasonal ingredients. We had some amazing squash and pumpkin and yeah. sweet corn dishes that were like, I was like, oh, this is different. Not what I expected yeah. from Argentina. But yeah, the food quality was amazing. The, the, the hotels were great. Yeah, I didn't want to leave Mendoza. I love Mendoza. I and I would happily go back. I think, you know, as you said, the quality of the food was really surprising to me because I have been in other regions where, you know, they'll do like a lunch at the winery and it's like it's good, right? But like it's clearly not something they're used to doing and so it feels a little stilted. Whereas this felt like very seamless. Like they do it all the time. They have these huge kitchens, they have the grills, they had chefs on site. I mean, this is something that like feels as you said very integrated. Like, you know, it's always supposed to be there and I think it really speaks to Mendoza and why it's a region worth paying attention to and worth visiting. We actually didn't talk about well, we talked about natural wine once on this podcast, but one of the producers that I really loved was Chicana. 
um, one of the only Demeter certified biodynamic producers. I think it, they said there's like only 10 right now, but it sounds like that number is growing. Biodynamicos. They like made a yeah. group with <laughs> the other. Like a yeah. or something. Yeah. But I really liked it. I think, you know, it's, it's not super easy, I think, to farm organically and biodynamically. There's you know, not a lot of water there. I think they, you know, they deal with those ants, as you mentioned, yeah. that love to eat the vines. But there's a few of them that are doing it and are producing biodynamic wines that are definitely more in the natural style. And Chicana was one of them. They do export into the U.S., which was interesting. So I'll be on the lookout for those wines. And then, you know, we talked about Katinga Zapata, of course, a great Great, classic, iconic winery. It's a kind of a can't miss if you're going to go to Mendoza. Uh, but what I really loved was the vermouth there. Wasn't that? That was like oh, a delicious. Oh, yeah, that was great. That, yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, that's not for release yet. That's just, that no, was only their you second. can go there and taste their vermouth and have it before dinner. I will say they're on the cutting edge, though, of like research and development around like how does Malbec become like reflect terroir. And 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 I think the investment that Katena has made in that and, yes. and being openly shared with the yes. community um, is is a level of transparency that I wish other regions would take on. It's like kind of like rising tide lifts all boats. Mm-hmm. If we figure this out, it'll make all of Argentina, all of Mendoza wines all better by doing that. And I thought that was a, a huge takeaway. And, and it, yeah. we have to mention the empanadas in the vineyard with, oh. Katena, with the oh two white you. bones and white stones. You can't, you. you can't skip by that. You got to mention no. that. No, you're right. Well, actually, what you failed to mention, even and even that, was the fact that the empanadas were the amuse bouche before our huge lunch. Oh yes, oh yeah. It's like before you have your three, four course lunch, you're gonna be in the vineyards and. Yeah. So yeah. So one of the cool things about Katinga Zapata is they have this vineyard called the called the Adriana Vineyard, which is at about five thousand feet of elevation, which is you know, for like all of these grapes is really really interesting. So we actually got to go out to that vineyard. They dropped the trunk of the truck or the bed of the truck and out popped these empanadas and these wine boxes and they were hot and fresh and delicious. And our, we'll call her our chaperone, Sophie Jump. She had been raving about them all week. She was like, you guys are going to love these empanadas. And she did not disappoint. The empanadas were delicious. And we had them with this like searingly high acid Chardonnay that they're making from there, the white bones and the white stones, which is delicious and hard to find, uh, but well worth it if you can. And with the empanadas, it was chef's kiss. Amanda was always pacing herself, and I do love. Yeah. She's like, she's like, she's like, I got a second empanada in me. I was like, you realize we're going to like a four court. She's like, I got this. <laughs> we have some questions from the audience. Number one, when is the best time to visit Mendoza? I would say fall and spring, just so you get the yeah. those two clients. Because if you're flying to Buenos Aires, it's going to be really hot and very yes. humid there, and then you go to Mendoza, it's going to be hot and dry in their summer or winter. And also we were there in, at this time of year, the, the color change was absolutely amazing. Oh my God. And so it was beautiful. I love seeing the colors, but I would like to go now in the spring so I can try the, what other food is in fashion <laughs> at that time. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. I'm with you. I think, uh, I think the fall was beautiful. And for those who have not been to a wine region in the fall, the vine leaves change colors too. It's not just the trees, it's the vine leaves too. And it is so beautiful to see. So you have these like, you know, for us, it was snow capped Andes in the fall they had just gotten a, a covering of snow up there. And then that sort of gave way to this yellow orange sea of vines. And it's quite flat in Mendoza. So you can really see kind of across. Um, it was absolutely breathtaking. And of course the sunsets, because you know the Andes are in the West, the sunsets in the West, it, you know that colorscape was incredible to see every single night. Um, and I will say, I did ask about going in some t- somewhere like January, because I know a lot of people 
like to travel in January. And it was advised to me that it's not a good time to go because one, it's very hot. And two, a lot of the winemakers and a lot of the the people take holiday then. So a lot of things can be closed. So it's just something to avoid. They did say late summer is good though. Like, like, uh, August. Should I go to Mendoza if I don't like Malbec? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's more growing there than just Malbec, but I would also like be open, right? Like, yeah. Because I, 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 what I would say is the diversity was really one of the takeaways for me in terms of the the, the profile. So I, I would try everything. And, and I think it's like, what don't you like about Malbec? It's hard. I, I don't understand how people hate on a grape, right? Because it's really how that grape is made is such an important factor. And so the ones, at, you know, less oak and, yeah. and lower ripeness levels, so they're not bombastic. That's really the takeaway that we had while we we're tasting through a lot of the wines. Everybody was dialing it back. Yeah. But there were great Chardonnays. Cabernet Franc was, is, I've never seen so much Cabernet Franc in a new worldwide region being planted. Yeah. There are some Cabernet Sauvignons in blend. So yeah, I think, I think it's, I think it's totally fine. Uh, You you have no reason to go there except for just the food. And the wine Uh. is like, as a secondary, if you're just a food lover and your, (laughs) and your significant other wants to drink the wine, you're set. You're going to have a great time. That's a good take. That's a great take. Yeah. I was always kind of lukewarm about Malbec. I was like, eh. But I, you know, I kind of like knew in the back of my mind, I was like, there's got, I know that there's really great expressions of like, I've had really good Malbecs before and going to Mendoza reinstated my love for it. It reconfirmed the fact that there is some great stuff being grown and made down there. So yeah, I think even if you're sort of like on the fence about Malbec, I think it's still worth going as Robert said, if only for the food. How different is Mendoza from somewhere like Napa Valley? Do I need to speak Spanish? No. And I would say, you know, there's, there's a huge Italian influence in Argentina. So the Spanish there is a little bit different than, you know, somewhere like you'd find, of course, in Spain or in Mexico, there is like, you know, your double L's or J's. So um, even if you do speak Spanish, you actually might have a little bit of a barrier anyway. But I, I would say, you know, it's always great when you go to any region to at least try to speak a few words there, you know, turn on your Duolingo, whatever you need to do. But no, everyone was really equipped with English there. And as far as, you know, how different is it from Napa Valley? In terms of like, the landscape quite different, but in terms of like it being set up for hospitality, you know, for me, it's probably, you know, as a new world wine region, the most, it feels very new world and it feels like one of the most tourist friendly, wine tourist friendly places that I've ever been to. What do you think? I think it's very accessible. I don't think Spanish is a big deal. Yeah. I think you need to do your research on where you want to go and, and probably make appointments. I think the roads are maybe the biggest, you know, impediment because there was a lot of like a lot of dirt roads, a lot of dirt roads and it's a bigger region than Napa. And so it's a little less commercial and and it is a big region. So you have to get around a little bit. I think it's pretty easy to navigate is if you just get a driver and things like that, like just the distance between the wineries can be quite substantial. I mean, it feels untouched, but it feels developed at the same time. Like you're not going to be staying at these like backwoods hotels. Like there are very nice hotels. You will be very comfortable. The restaurants are beautiful. There's a lot of modern amenities in the region. The dirt roads are interesting to me though. It is a little bit bifurcated in that way. So like, don't let the dirt roads make, I think it gives a different illusion than what the region actually is. You just have to go slower or our driver went slower on them. So I think, you know, for, for time accommodation, just be wary that like, it may look like it's not that far, but if you have a driver, like we did, it might take you a little longer. <laughs> but where we stayed in the, when we were up in the Uko Valley, uh, I mean, there was no real lights around. And so the night skies, especially at uh, that altitude, yeah. were amazing. And I and I think that if you're remiss not to mention that, it's like you are in wine country and you yes. are in remote. So it's like like the hotels, like they're, they're giving you a certain setting. It's like you go yeah. in there and it's, I mean, every place had Wi-Fi, great, you know, pretty good mm-hmm. Wi-Fi and all that stuff. Like, so that's not an issue from 
getting around cell phone signals hit and miss depending on your carrier. But, uh, but yeah, I thought it was pretty easy to travel there. Yeah, very easy. And, and as you said, it's just wine grapes out there, right? Like there's that, that is the main commodity of Mendoza. It is mostly what you're going to see. So you're, you will not be confused as to whether you're in a wine region. Literally, as you exit the airport, the vines will be right there. They yes. were like, before we even got out the exit gate, they were there. So you'll feel like you're in wine country. You'll eat the best food. You'll drink delicious wine. And speaking of delicious wine, I am still drinking my delicious wine on this show. And hopefully you guys are still drinking your delicious wine as well. And if you're not, reminder, join the Wine Access Unfiltered Podcast Wine Club. We got to find a smaller name for this wine club. It's getting too long for me to say. I am curious if people who are maybe Malbec haters are trying this because they're in the wine club. Mm. Did this wine change their opinion? Because Oh, good question. It is kind of like the new wave of like the third wave of what uh, Argentine wine is, you know, is becoming. And so I'm curious on if people... If this was like was a game changer for them, or if this is what they thought they were going to get when they poured it in the glass, yeah, great question. And if you did try this wine, if you are in the wine club and you did try this wine and had some thoughts about it, you can always share them on Instagram, tag us at Wine Access Unfiltered, and let us know what you thought, or just send us a little DM, and we'll be we'll be there in the DMs to answer back. Robert, always a treat. I'm so glad that we finally had you on the show. Yes, I was I was so waiting for the invitation. <laughs> I was like, Amanda, if I'm going on this trip, you have to have me on the podcast. She's like, oh. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. No, I'm I'm so glad this worked out. I can't think of a better person to have recapped this trip and talked about Mendoza with. Uh, so much fun. I look forward to drinking more Malbec with you in the future. Who would have thought? I thought we were only going to drink Lake Nebbiola together. Yeah, or Sangiovese. Yeah, there you go. This has been the Wine Access Unfiltered Podcast. Thank you all so much for joining us. We will see you all again soon. Cheers. Cheers.